You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. My podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors. It's officially the brutally cold winter months, and this is where you need your windows to step up their game. This is where energy efficiency is really important. Keeping your home energy efficient keeps you and your family cozy while saving on energy bills, which is huge during these cold winter months, and your windows are vital in this fight. Pella uses low e-glass and double pane glass with insulating gas to keep the warm inside and the cold outside. You can find out more by contacting your local Pella Omaha and Lincoln expert today or just go online to PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And the Nick Bob Podcast is powered by Runza. It is that time of the year. It has officially begun, people. Temperature Tuesdays are back at Runza. Every Tuesday in January and February, the 6 a.m. temperature at the coldest Runza location is the price you'll pay for an original Runza sandwich when you buy a medium fry and a medium drink. So make sure you take advantage of this incredible deal every single Tuesday, January and February at Runza. Temperature Tuesdays are back, people. Let's do it. Runza makes it all better. Okay, welcome back into the podcast, and it's just me and you today. I got five topics Five takes, going to knock them out one by one. We're going to get into college football players opting out of bowl games and some of the college football playoff structure stuff. I got some Creighton basketball thoughts, some Nebraska basketball thoughts, a what if for Nebraska, and of course, some Husker football quarterback transfer portal stuff as well. And I want to start there with the Husker transfer portal seeking a quarterback because all signs over the last you know 48 hours or so point to Nebraska potentially landing a transfer portal quarterback and it's looking like it is Florida State transfer Chubba Purdy side note if you're wondering about the name Chubba Evan Bland had this nugget in the Omaha World Herald Chubba is not his uh, his real name but his dad called him Chubba and when he was one, and it stuck because apparently when Chubba was one, he weighed 38 pounds, which which as a father of a one-year-old right now, Mac is about, I guess, one and a half. That's nuts. 38-pound one-year-old? Like, good golly. I just I enjoyed that nugget because I was like, that's a weird name, Chubba. What's what's going on with that? Uh, so I, I enjoyed that. But again, all, song, all signs right now are pointing to Chubba Purdy. Uh, coming to Nebraska. This was a quote from his dad. This is uh, in the Omaha World Herald. This is a quote from Chubba Purdy's dad. He said, quote, Nebraska is the one he's most interested in, so that's the one he has scheduled. Talking about a visit. Things are starting to heat up because people are finally seeing where everybody is going. Nebraska is number one on his list. So he Chubba Purdy is going to visit on January 14th, I believe. Classes start a few days later. Um, and I've talked about on this pod the importance of getting a transfer portal quarterback enrolled for second semester so they can go through spring ball. So I get to me, it sounds like you read those, the, you read that quote, 
you you time you see the timeline of things. You look at the fact that you know it's the only place he's visiting right now. It sounds like barring a disaster on his official visit, Chubba Purdy is going to be a Husker. Now it's never official until it's official. I mean, uh, oh boy, gosh, who was the kid that was going to Dylan Gabriel? The Central Florida transfer was going to UCLA until. The Oklahoma quarterback transferred, and so now he's going to end up going to Oklahoma. So you never know. I mean, that's the difference. Uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of talk about that, the structure of the portal and how there's, you know, there isn't kind of any uh, signing period where you're you're basically nothing's official until you are enrolled and in class and going there. Like, you, you can theoretically, I guess, enroll in multiple places or whatever. Uh, but I guess I, I say all that, say, also, barring some sort of disaster, Chubba Purdy's probably going to go to Nebraska. But it's never official until it's official. So I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but it's it sounds like he's going to come to Lincoln. Here's kind of my my quick reaction to to this news so far. So Chubba Purdy, 6'2", 215, he's a freshman. He's going to have four years of eligibility if uh, wherever he goes. Uh, by the way, he's a four-star recruit from Arizona out of high school. Mark Whipple recruited him out of high school and when he was transferring uh, – Purdy got hurt at Florida State, injured his collarbone, and so he, he he hasn't played much. His his sample size in terms of production is is fairly limited, and that's what makes this tough to kind of really sink your teeth into, because there really isn't much to go off of, which doesn't necessarily matter or doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing, but like I heard Sam McEwen put it, Chubba Purdy's got about as much of experience as Logan Smothers does. Just kind of put it into perspective. And listen, Joe Burrow didn't have much experience either, and and look how he did. Right? Like, so you never know. Sam Keller had a lot of experience, and he was, yeah, he was okay. Captain Checkdown. But nevertheless, there isn't a ton of experience with with Purdy. So with with assessing this, I'm gonna give you what I like about Chubba Purdy, what is maybe a little concerning. I'm going to tell you why it may not totally matter, and then just a, an overall observation as as I've kind of looking at this thing from the outside, looking at it over the last couple of weeks. I'll start with what I like. What I like is I like that Mark Whipple likes Purdy. Whipple is an experienced coach who who knows what translates. He he knows what he likes. He's evaluated a ton of the quarterbacks in his in his career. So if Mark Whipple likes Chubba Purdy, which he clearly does, recruited him uh, to come to Pitt out of high school, recruited him to come to Pitt when he hit the transfer portal a couple of, you know, about a month ago, and then has continued to recruit Chubba Purdy once Mark Whipple took the Nebraska job. So clearly, Mark Whipple likes him. Plus, I've always thought the main decision maker of whoever the next quarterback at the University of Nebraska is needs to be whoever the next offensive coordinator is. I said that when those those jobs were open, and now that it's Mark Whipple, it needs to be Mark Whipple's decision on who's going to be calling the shots. So I like that. What is a concern is the lack of experience for me. Like, given the fact that Nebraska is in win-now mode, they're not in, hey, let's develop and build this thing up. No, that was, that was 2018, 2019. 20, the, those, those, that time has come and gone. 
They're in win-now mode. And I'm not saying by win-now mode they're in the business of winning 10, 11 games and winning a Big Ten title, but they're not in big-picture, long-term developmental mode. They need to win and win now. So given the fact that Nebraska's in win-now mode, you would think that they need ready-made dudes who are as close to sure things as possible in the transfer portal, in particular at that quarterback spot, with obviously the understanding that nothing is ever a certainty in sports. I've said that oftentimes, players, when they transfer, and this come from a guy that transferred, but it's even more so now because of the, the transfer portal and, and it's a lot more commonplace and all that. But players, when they transfer, are seeking guarantees. That's what they're, they're seeking guarantees. They don't want to roll the dice with a situation. They just, they just went through a roll of the dice and it didn't work out. They're seeking guarantees. Well, I think that school of thought applies to Nebraska and their coaching staff right now with their quarterback situation for next year. Ideally, they don't want to roll the dice on an unproven player. Ideally, they have a guy that has, you know, a year or two or three of experience under his belt at this level. So in that regard, this isn't necessarily the exact situation at least that I had in mind, with who Nebraska would potentially go grab in the transfer portal. Which then leads me into why all this may not matter, not totally matter, because there are lots of reports, a lot of people, you know, Sipple, McEwen, uh, different people in the, in the recruiting world have speculated that Nebraska may be in the market for not one, but two transfer portal quarterbacks. Maybe get a younger one, that would be the Chubba Purdy, and then maybe an older one with, with maybe one or two years left of eligibility. So Nebraska may still land an older, experienced quarterback and land two transfer portal guys. So we'll see. And then there's something that's been interesting to kind of observe throughout all this over the past kind of month or so as, as the transfer portal quarterback watch has been in full effect for Nebraska. And this is purely from a perspective of the outside looking in. Because who knows what is being said internally between coaches to coaches, coaches to players. Who knows? But over the course of this last month and and this entire conversation over the last month, it's almost like Logan Smothers, Heinrich Harburg, and now Richard Torres, who is enrolling early and going to go through spring ball, by the way. It's like those three guys don't even exist. It, it's almost as if Nebraska has their quarterback room. The lights are off. The door is locked. There's no one in there. They got nobody. Like, if they wanted to practice today, they'd be like, we got no quarterback. Like, it, it's almost as if those guys aren't even – they don't even factor into the conversation. The thought of next year's starting quarterback being one of those three guys, for a lot of people, doesn't even enter the realm of possibility. That's just that's the vibe I get from the outside looking in. And listen, I'm not saying that's right or that's wrong. I just find that interesting. You you do wonder, and again, this is where it's interesting. We don't know exactly what's being said internally, but in terms of how all of, and that's all that really matters is just kind of how this is being communicated from Mark Whipple and Scott Frost to the quarterbacks. But you wonder if a guy like Logan Smothers is like, hello, like, hi, I started a game. I'm here. Hello, I can do this. It's just interesting to to 
to watch that unfold. It's almost like Harburg, Smothers, Torres. It's like, eh, no, 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 no. So we'll see how all this shakes out. Does, you know, does Chubba Purdy end up at Nebraska? All signs point to yes, but again, until it's a done deal, it's not a done deal. Does Nebraska still try to land a second transfer portal quarterback? Various reports indicate that, but who knows? It'll be interesting to watch this all unfold. Again, that spring semester starts, what, I think January 18th is the exact date. 17th or 18th, I think 18th. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're getting close. The Nick Bob Podcast is powered by Runza and the cold winter months. It's officially here. And as a warm weather lover myself, the cold can kind of bum me out. But the one thing that always puts a huge smile on my face when it gets cold, temperature Tuesdays at Runza. Yes, it's that time of the year. Temperature Tuesdays are back at Runza, where every Tuesday in January and February, the 6 a.m. temperature at the coldest Runza location is the price you'll pay for an original Runza sandwich when you buy a medium fry and medium drink. Think about it. An original Runza sandwich might be 10 cents, a dime, might be a nickel, might be a quarter. Heck, might even be one penny. Just one penny. So make sure you take advantage of this incredible deal every single Tuesday at Runza where the temp at 6 a.m. in Runza land is the price you pay for an original Runza sandwich and you buy a medium fry and a medium drink. It's back, baby. Temperature Tuesdays. Runza makes it all better. Sticking with uh, with football for a second, and then I'll get to some hoop stuff. One of the big hot topics kind of right now with, with college football and, and a lot of the bowl games in the rearview mirror, the two college football playoff games in the rearview mirror, one of the big hot topics has been players opting out of bowl games and then, then the subsequent conversation of the structure of college football's postseason, in particular the college football playoff. We even had guys like Kirk Herbstreet and, and Desmond Howard they ruffled some feathers uh, on ESPN by saying that you know, pl- with the players opting out that you know players don't love football nowadays and yada, yada, yada. And there's just been a lot of people, a lot of hand-wringing and complaining about these players opting out of bowls, which obviously isn't new, but it's becoming more and more commonplace and more and more widespread. Here's kind of my, my thought on it all. First of all, let me start by saying I completely understand the line of thinking, the school of thought with some players opting out of bowl games that are aligned to be first or second round draft picks. I completely understand. And, and anybody that that is on the other side of this conversation of, you know, even a guy like Steve Sippel, it you know, drives him crazy when players are opting out of bowl games. I want to be like, come on, just be, just let me, true serum, lie detector. Do you not understand it? Because again, you may not like it, but I don't understand how you may, how you don't understand it. And if you don't like it, that's fine. Like, there are elements of it that I don't like. Like, I'd rather watch all these guys play in the bowl game. And sure, in a perfect world, everybody plays every game. But at the same time, I understand it. And what's hard is it's it's hard to speak in generalities with this topic because every situation is different. You know, a guy that's projected to be a sixth-round pick opting out of a bowl game, you're like, "Eh, I don't know about that. But a guy that's projected to be a first-round pick opting out of, you know, the Kellogg's Cornflakes Bowl, like, I get it. I completely understand a guy that's in line to be a first or second round pick sitting out of the Belk Bowl or something like that. And my guess is, 
and this is what's kind of been funny about this entire conversation. My guess is a lot of the teammates of the guys deciding to sit out completely get it too. Because that's who we really should be. You, know, you, you get people from the outside looking in like, oh, man, this that guy's really letting everybody down. It's like, well, hold on. Is he? Or, you know, maybe go talk to the rest of the Ohio State locker room and ask them about Olave and Garrett Wilson, you know, those guys sitting out. Like, do they get it? Because I, really put yourself, try, try to, because the, with this whole situation, really try to put yourself in the shoes of a football player, or heck, try to put yourself in in the shoes of a parent of one of these players. Really try to put your, yourself in the shoes of a football player that is in line to be a first or second round draft pick. You're in line for a, a big payday, and with your football window to play and 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 make make money, with the understanding that that it's short, right? The NFL, there's the whole line of the NFL stands for not for long. You got to maximize while you can. Would you risk injury if if it were you, if it were your kid? I'm not sure I would. I I don't know. I I'm not sure I would. I'm not sure I would. But when you even unpack this further, because a lot of this is is college football structure's own fault and not the players in my opinion. Like we're sometimes we're 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 pointing the finger at the wrong group of people. I this is just me, so maybe this is why some of it lands a little bit different for me to begin with. For for me, I've never throughout my entire life, and this is coming from someone I, I like college fo- I'm a college football guy over an NFL guy. Like give me a good Saturday over a good Sunday any it, it, 24-7-365. But I've always never understood college football's postseason at all. And it's I've always hated it. It's always been really perplexing to me. It's kind of one of those things, I don't know if anybody, a lot of people have ever really taken a step back and realized just what the heck is this. Like, it's like a lot, a lot of college football, college football people have kind of Stockholm Syndrome with, with, college football's postseason, it's nonsense. Everything about it is nonsense. Bowl games have never really landed with me. Splitting national championships over the course of time has never really landed with me. Having a poll decide who's the champion or a, or what the championship game is or, or a, a, the BC having a formula decide, it's just bizarre. It's bizarre. Even, even like in 1997... Yeah, I was too young and and to know better when I was observing all this stuff. And I'm like, even like 1997, the Nebraska Tennessee bowl game was it was kind of the national championship game, but it kind of wasn't at all. It was the national championship game if Nebraska won it, but not if Tennessee won. Okay, got it. What? That that same the Michigan Washington State game. That's kind of the national title game, depending on the outcome. If Michigan wins it, then yeah, yeah, it's a national title game. What? I mean, I just couldn't imagine being on the call for, for the, oh, do we got a dandy for you today? Keith Jackson on the call. It's Michigan, Washington State. It's the national championship game. Only if the one team wins it. If not, ooh, Nelly, I don't think it is the national championship game. Like, What are we talking about? 
I've just never understood that. That I've I've said this before. The long layoff between the end of the regular season and, and the quote unquote postseason, whether that's bowl games or the national championship game or, or the college football playoff, sometimes you'll have three, four, five weeks off between your last game to the bowl game or the college football playoff. I mean, on what planet does that make sense? Into the regular season, let's take four weeks off and then play. What? What planet does that make sense? So, sorry to get those two things off my chest. With I just so a lot of it starts with like I don't understand the postseason to begin with. So, and I think it's it's incredibly flawed and silly to be, to begin with. So, when when I'm coming from that place, players electing to not participate, I I can I can wrap my mind around it when they're in line to be a first round draft pick. And the other thing with all that is the world has changed around these players as it pertains to bowl games and their importance. Matt Schick, in a podcast that I have with Schick and Nick, it comes out every Sunday, Monday-ish. You should go check it out. Schick and Nick. It's fantastic. Schick had some eye-opening numbers that, that blew me away. Think about this. Really let this sink in. As to why there's... People are have the, the, when I talk about the world has changed around these players, and and how we view bowls and all that. Schick had these numbers. I'm going to give you the number of bowl games each decade. Okay, number of total bowl games. In 1951, there were eight. 1961, there was 11 bowl games. 1971, there was 12. 1981, there was 16. 1991, there was 18. 2001, there was 25. 2011, there was 35. In 2021, there's 43 or 44. Wow. So when people like Kirk Herbstreet and Desmond Howard say, you know, man, bowl, playing in a bowl game used to mean something. It used to be an amazing reward. You're right. It did. When there was like 10 bowl games or 15 bowl games. Not to mention how, how else the world has changed around college football and these players and all this stuff. The explosion of television and how that impact, impacts things as well. For some players on teams in 1991 or 1981 or 1971, the bowl game may be the only game you play on TV or maybe one of two or three games that's played on TV and will be by far the biggest stage, the stage you play on throughout the entire year. So, yeah, I understand why playing in the whatever bowl was a bigger deal back in the day. Only a select few teams actually made it to a bowl. You you maybe got on TV for the, a couple of times a year, and this was one of them, and it was by far the biggest stage. So, yeah, like I understand why in 1991 people viewed different, you know, Desmond Howard viewed bowl games differently because it was a different world. I don't think the players have changed. I think the world around them has changed. So I think you add all those things up that I just kind of let her. I guess I can wrap my mind around a, a player after putting his body on the line for 12, 13 games in a regular season. He then takes three to four weeks off between games, is in line to be a first round or a second round pick, which is a million dollar payday. 
I can get why they wouldn't want to risk things for a bowl game that isn't for a title. And there's 42 other bowl games. Because, because the other thing is this. What you haven't seen yet, and I don't think you will, what you haven't seen is players opting out of college football playoff games. You see players opting out of these bowl games that are not playoff games. What you haven't seen is players opting out of college football playoff games. Which then leads me into the the, the college football playoff structure. Expanding the playoff to 8 to 12 teams solves so many of these issues. Don't like players opting out of bowl games? Expand the playoff to 12 teams. Don't like the long layoff in between the end of the regular season and, and these bowl games and the, and the postseason? Expand the playoff to 12 teams. Don't like how it seems that the same teams are involved every year? Expand the playoff to 12 teams. It's, it's just, to me, it's so obvious that expanding the playoff is the solution to college football's postseason issues. I just, I honestly feel like... I feel like I'm looking up at the sky. I see that the sky is blue, and everybody's trying to tell me, "No, it's red." I don't know how to argue. I don't know how to argue with you. I don't. I don't know what to say. More teams involved, more interest, more games matter, more players engaged, all the way to the finish. It solves it all. Check, 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 check. Solves it all. So I just man. Been interesting to watch the the arguing and the takes over the course of of the last couple of weeks with college football's postseason and, and all that stuff and players opting out. But isn't that crazy? Those numbers that Chick had number of bowl games. I'm going to repeat it one more time. 1951, there were eight bowl games. 1961, 11. 1971, 12. 1981, 16. 1991, 18. 2001, 25. 2011, 35. 2021, there's 43 or 44. Holy shit. I mean, those numbers are dramatic. Used to mean something was a bowl game. Yeah, yeah, because, like, there were only 10 bowl games, 15 bowl games. It's just, it's, expanding the playoffs solves so many things. It solves so many things. The Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors, and I want to talk to you guys about energy efficiency. And if you go into Pella's website right now, you look at it, and how about this? One, two, three, four, five different types of windows or doors by Pella won the Energy Star 2020 Most Energy Efficient Award. That's big-time stuff right there. And they achieved that in a couple of waves. They got insulated glass, which slows the heat transfer, keeping your home at a more comfortable temperature. They got types of low-E glass, which is a glass coating that has been optimized for your climate. They got triple pane glass, which you can upgrade to for increased insulating airspace. And within all of that, one of the keys is proper installation, which is key for window and doors to perform at their best. And you know the Pella experts are excellent at that. Bottom line, energy efficiency matters in making your home more comfortable. And Pella windows and doors are at the top of the line when it comes to energy efficiency. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. Speaking of Schick, I'll stick with football. One more, one last topic, and then we'll get to some hoops to wrap it up. 
Speaking of shit, because I, I discussed I discussed this with Shick as well, because I, I was you know writing down topics before I recorded with with Shick on on gosh I think we recorded Monday. I had a moment this past Sunday that struck me. I'm 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 watching the highlights to the Cincinnati Bengals and Joe Burrow lighting it up, and the Cincinnati Bengals clinching their division, AFC North. And then I see the the little video in the locker room with with once again swagged out, badass looking Joe Burrow celebrating with a cigar, doing a little dance. And I kind of snapshotted that everything with that in my mind. And when you contrast that with the current state of Nebraska football and what the last four years have looked like under Scott Frost with Adrian Martinez. I couldn't help but ask out loud not to revisit this topic for the 55,000th time. Is Joe Burrow becoming the ultimate what-if for Nebraska football? Now, to be fair, I don't want to sound like an enormous hypocrite because I've been on the record numerous times in the moment saying that I agreed with the decision from Scott Frost to not pursue Joe Burrow and to stick with Adrian Martinez Heading into 2018, I thought that in the moment that decision made sense. When Joe Burrow was transferring from Ohio State, you weren't sure exactly what he was because there wasn't a huge sample size of him playing. You weren't sure. Burrow had two years of eligibility remaining, which I think I actually think complicated things a little bit with the true freshman and Adrian Martinez, who was Scott Frost's handpicked guy. Oh, by the way, you you can't have revisionist history of what it was like in the moment that Scott Frost was also the quarterback guru, quarterback whisperer at the time. Like if if he thought this was the guy, I don't know how anybody could question that. And keep in mind, the hype around Adrian Martinez was sky high. The year Martinez was a Heisman candidate, so after... That's what people forget about. I think some people think Burrow's only year at LSU was the year he lit the world on fire, won the Heisman, won the title. No, he had two years. So if you contrast Joe Burrow's first year at LSU and Adrian Martinez's first year at Nebraska, it was Martinez that was a Heisman candidate. It was Martinez that was probably the higher thought-of player than Burrow heading into that year that Burrow obviously becomes a legend and wins the Heisman. So again, I say all that to, to make sure that people aren't thinking I'm a hypocrite and all this stuff. I, we don't want to have revisionist history about how things were thought of in the moment. But nevertheless, nevertheless, there are decisions that make sense in the moment and things that make sense in the moment that are still enormous what-ifs and without question, massive mistakes when viewing them in hindsight, right? And that's kind of what I'm getting at. Let me give you an example of that. I gave this example of talking to shit. Sam Bowie. Sam Bowie is famous because he was selected one pick before Michael Jordan in the 1984 NBA draft. And for a lot of people, it's like, Sam Bowie before Michael, Sam Bowie, did you know Sam Bowie was taken before Michael Jordan? Uh, Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan? I mean, come on. How stupid. Worst, tra- worst pick of all time. Now, in hindsight, obviously it was a colossal mistake, but 
in the moment, it actually kind of made sense. The year before, the Portland Trailblazers had selected Clyde Drexler, who is a very similar player to Michael Jordan. At the time, they were viewed very similarly. So given that Portland had their 6'6 high-flying wing scorer, they didn't need another one. What they needed was a big guy, and that was Sam Bowie. So in the moment, it made sense. But in hindsight, it's a bonehead, wow, what the were you thinking mistake that I'm sure amongst Portland trailblazer conversations and and people, it's a it's one of the biggest what ifs. Same thing with Burrow. In the moment, I can wrap my mind around sticking with Martinez. But as time goes by, and the more incredible football Joe Burrow plays, and the more accomplishments Joe Burrow racks up, and the the more mind-blowing it is to say out loud, Nebraska could have had Joe Burrow. He's a legacy player. Family ties to the program. Multiple Burrows played at Nebraska. By all accounts, Joe Burrow wanted to go to Nebraska when he transferred from Ohio State. Instead, Burrow goes to LSU, and the rest is history. He wins the Heisman Trophy, leads LSU to a national title, and now in the NFL, you could you could argue he's a top five, top ten NFL quarterback who just led the Cincinnati Bengals to winning the AFC North. Pretty remarkable. Especially contrasting and considering the direction that Nebraska has went from that point. Martinez ends up never getting over the hump. Martinez got benched at one point in his career. Martinez basically had a mutual parting of ways with Nebraska when he had one more season left. And now Nebraska has had four straight losing seasons and Scott Frost is squarely on the hot seat. Now, to be fair, getting Joe Burrow doesn't guarantee that the last four years are wildly different and getting Joe Burrow doesn't guarantee that Joe Burrow has the same trajectory and arc and accomplishments in a career, right? Who really knows on that? But the one thing we can agree on now is Joe Burrow's better than Adrian Martinez. Again, maybe Joe Burrow doesn't become what he is today if he goes to Nebraska because LSU had Joe Brady as a passing game coordinator and had supreme weapons surrounding him like Jamar Chase. So again, you never know. But one of the common threads that binds all coaches who ultimately fail at their job is they never got the quarterback right. And like Schick said, in the in the 30 for 30 on Joe Burrow, the documentary movie on Joe Burrow, an amazing footnote would be that he wanted to go to Nebraska and that Nebraska said no thanks. 
I think of all the what-ifs in Nebraska football history, Danny Woodhead on an... I think of all the what-ifs in Nebraska football history each year that passes and each year that sees Joe Burrow light the football world on fire, the Joe Burrow what-if is rapidly becoming one of the biggest in Nebraska football history. Just was struck by that as I saw Burrow smoking a cigar and celebrating winning the AFC North. I was like, wow, goodness gracious. All right, let's, let's wrap this bad boy up with some hoops. So, again, I'm taping this. It's early Wednesday morning, January 5th. Uh, Nebraska, they, they battle Michigan State tonight, but Nebraska lost a heartbreaker to Ohio State on Sunday night. Uh, it was a game that I was on the call for, or, or on the call on with, uh, with the Big Ten Network. Uh, it, it was a hell of a game. And while the game still resulted in a loss for Nebraska, I actually walked away from that game feeling that there were a lot of positives to take from, from, from that game for Nebraska. I hate to play the moral victory card, but I left that game feeling better about Nebraska in any other game. I, I walked away from that game feeling higher on Nebraska than I have at any other point throughout this year. Now, I'm still not overly high on them because I just think they just are really flawed in a lot of ways. But I, I thought there were a lot of positives from that game when you consider their circumstances and situation. Now, it is important to note that Ohio State was coming off a three-week layoff and didn't have Kyle Young. But still, that's a top 15 team that is good, that has wins over Seton Hall, beat Duke. It's a good team that's got one of the best players in the country in E.J. Liddell. And to, and to battle them, Latman makes two free throws, they win. But to battle them, it goes to overtime, and they ultimately come up short. It's a good team in Ohio State. Here's what stood out with that game. The first thing that stood out, especially being courtside, calling the game, this was maybe the first game of the season that I thought Nebraska's fight, energy, focus, competitiveness, toughness was finally up to par. I've been pretty outspoken on this topic. Nebraska's fight and toughness on defense has been poor this year. That was by far the most locked in and engaged and most fight Nebraska's had on defense all year. They had a plan defensively. They executed They executed it, and they played hard. I was at shoot-around, watched Nebraska go over the defensive plan. They executed that plan perfectly, to a T. They wanted to trap the post. They wanted to protect the paint. They wanted to limit E.J. Liddell and Zed Key. They checked all those boxes. E.J. Liddell, one of the best players in the country, averages 20 points per game. Liddell went 2 of 14. Nebraska protected the paint. In fact, they outscored Ohio State in the paint. They... They protected the post. They flew around. They communicated. It takes a ton of fight and a ton of talk and a ton of effort to defend Ohio State the way they did, trap the post, and scramble out of it. And Nebraska did all those things. And quite frankly, I wasn't sure Nebraska had it in them to do it. I mean, I watched Auburn and Michigan hang 100 on them. And I was like, I don't know, I don't know. Because there were numerous times this year I felt like Nebraska was the dreaded S-word, soft. Nebraska was not soft the other night versus Ohio State. The effort and the fight was great to see. And you can build off that. So that's the first thing that stood out to me in watching that game that is a positive. 
The next thing that stood out was the tweaks that Fred Hoiberg's been talking about for the last couple of weeks about some alterations to the offense and playing through Derek Walker more finally showed up. Hoiberg told me at shoot-around that he, he felt like he really needed to switch some things up offensively. They, they wanted to get Walker more involved, post-ups, uh, mid-post, elbow, isos, playing out of him. He's, Walker's a capable scorer. He's not Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but he's a capable scorer. He, he's got pretty good feel and can pass well. And, you know, just get him the ball inside can do a lot of things for your offense. You saw Walker get more touches, and it led to production and better possessions, I felt like, offensively. Overall, Walker had 15 points, 10 rebounds. He had four steals. He had a good day. So I thought some of the tweaks and things that Fred Hoiberg's been talking about, you saw it. The other thing that was interesting to me with from this game was the what you saw from a rotation standpoint. Kobe Webster and C.J. Wilcher played more, and Alonzo Verge and Kese Tominaga played less. Now, who knows if that was a one-game thing, it was a gut decision, or if that trend will continue, but I actually kind of liked it. Kobe Webster and C.J. Wilcher are stronger players. And in my opinion, they some of the, those two guys make better offensive decisions at times than Verge and Tominaga, especially Wilcher over Tominaga, not as much Verge. But Wilcher over Tominaga, absolutely. That's something I think Hoiberg really needs to really, really think about and stick with. Playing more, playing C.J. Wilcher more and maybe Tominaga less. As far as Alonzo Verge, it's weird because I, I, I even thought this, you know, on the call and I brought it up, like, specifically speaking of that Ohio State game, I didn't think Verge played poorly, but Fred Hoiberg felt like Kobe Webster kind of had it going and, and the, the, the team was performing better with him on the floor and they wanted to roll with him and I thought it was probably the right call. I just think Kobe Webster is a guy that needs to see more minutes giving his skill set and what he can bring to the table. And same thing with C.J. Wilcher. We'll see what that looks like as, as things progress. The other thing I thought you saw that that was good was a, I think you saw a different mindset and approach from Bryce McGowan's, and I liked it. I've thought all year, and I've said it on this podcast, that I prefer him to be in attack mode and driving rather than settling for tough jump shots. And while Bryce McGowan's wasn't overly efficient in the game, he was only 6 of 19, I liked his offensive approach more. He got downhill, tried to get into the paint, tried to attack the basket more, tried to draw fouls. I think over the course of time, that bodes well for Bryce McGowan's rather than just settling for tough, long jump shots. So all in all, I get it, man. Nebraska lost. That's frustrating. But to me, for as much as it's obviously about wins and losses, I think it's also about improving and trending in the right direction with things. And even though Nebraska lost that game to Ohio State, I thought that was arguably the best overall game they'd played all season. So while it was a loss and you file it the same category as the Auburn and the Michigan game, to me, I view those, I viewed it dramatically different. We'll see if they can build on it. It's one thing to to get up and hook it up for one game. Now can you can you wipe this the the slate clean and go do it again at Michigan State? Because Michigan State is physical, they play fast. They're hungry. Like, you got to be ready to, to handle all those things. We'll see if they can build on it. I think at least for one game, they took a, a good step in the right direction. Creighton getting ready to battle uh, Villanova tonight on the road. Uh, 
and Creighton had that double overtime game on uh, on the road at Marquette where they found themselves on the right side of a of of the game where they had a 17 point lead they let it slip they found a way to get into double overtime with an uh, Alex O'Connell three and then they find a way to win it late and again that's been a theme throughout the year where Creighton's more often than not just found a way to win which I've said all year is a great quality to possess and a lot of good programs and good teams just have it where you you find yourself walking away from the game going boy I'm not sure exactly how how we won that game as opposed to, man, how did we lose that game? More often than not, good programs find themselves saying, well, we found a way to win. I don't know how we did it, but we did it. But the one thing that's on my mind with Creighton right now, the one thing that is just is, is rising to the top to me is Ryan Kalkbrenner. I remember a few years ago, I had a take on my radio show. It was It was maybe heading into the final four of the the last kind of normal NCAA tournament with fans in the stands and, and multiple cities and all that. It was the, the NCAA tournament that saw Virginia beat Texas Tech in the national championship game. But I remember, I remember looking at the teams that were in the Sweet 16 and in the Elite Eight and then in the final four in the national championship game. And, of course, I'm always thinking about contrasting that to Creighton. One of the things that stood out with those teams that were in the Sweet 16 Elite Eight, the common thread that bonded a lot of those teams was rim protection. And outside of the one year with Justin Patton, rim protection is something that has really eluded Creighton over the past 10, 15 years. And this year, that is totally different. Ryan Kalkbrenner is one of the best rim protectors in college basketball. He's top 20 in college basketball in terms of blocks per game. Ryan Kalkbrenner is uh, 17th as I'm recording this. But what's super impressive is there's only one player in the country inside the top 20 in blocks per game that has fewer fouls than Ryan Kalkbrenner, and that's Trace Jackson Davis of Indiana. So Ryan Kalkbrenner is blocking shots without fouling. It's just amazing to watch this guy blossom in front of our eyes as an elite rim protector. Kalkbrenner blocked five shots against Villanova, changed the game. He blocked five shots against BYU, changed the game. He blocked four shots against Marquette, totally threw Justin Lewis off, totally changed the game. Not to mention, in every game, and in those three games in particular, the amount of shots Ryan Kalkbrother either alters or just completely deters. Where some guys are just like, man, I'm I'm just going to settle for this 16-footer. I'm not attacking that guy. It is changing Creighton's team. It is changing Creighton's team. And again, it's something that Creighton hasn't had. When you have an eraser at the rim, it changes everything on defense. It changes how you physically defend, your mental approach, your, your mindset, your mentality. You can get more aggressive as a guard and, and pressure more, go for steals, You can because you know you got a guy behind you that's going to erase it. You can funnel things to Kalkbrenner, drop coverage on ball screens, just say, hey, lead him right to Kalkbrenner, say, hey, good luck finishing over this guy. Oftentimes... Basketball's 
basketball is a game of easy baskets. Sometimes it's as simple as that. And that's why points in the paint sometimes are really a, a, a good barometer of that because it's, you know, po- basket, points in the paint usually are a sign of like layups and dunks and those kinds of things. But oftentimes basketball is a game of easy baskets. You, you want to get as many easy, easy baskets as you can and you want to eliminate as many easy baskets from your opponent. Rim protection is a huge influencer on the ladder. And again, Kalkbrenner is doing it without fouling, which is really hard to do and really impressive and something a lot of quote-unquote good shot blockers don't really do. Because, you know, the one thing I like about Kalkbrenner, Kalkbrenner is a, a shot blocker without ego. And what I mean by that is lots of shot blockers, and maybe this is like the Dikembe Mutombo effect or like what a lot of shot blockers, they want the emphatic block. They want, they want the volleyball spike, like cock your hand back, like hammer the ball down, give you the Matumbo finger wag or give you the mean mug or scream. You know what I mean? Like that's all ego stuff. A block is a block. Kalkbrenner goes straight up, just just right back at your face or deflects it up. or is, Right? Like Kalkbrenner do, does it. He, he accomplishes the same thing without the ego of like, you need to see how good I am at blocking this shot. Ugh. He doesn't do that. It's just block, just straight up, arm straight up block. So that allows him to not foul. And the other thing is it keeps a lot of his block shots in play. Watch that when you watch Crane play. A lot of his block, certain guys that block shots try to send it to the fifth row, right? So then they can have their moment like, shit, check your boy out. I'm out here just blocking shots. Check me out. Okay, well, could you have maybe just blocked it and kept it in play? You know, t- you know, did you have to do that? Or maybe the next time you swing so hard to block to the fifth row, guess what? It looks like a foul and you might get the whistle. But a lot of his blocks, he keeps he keeps them in play, which sometimes can spring Creighton the other way. I, it's just, it is, it's incredible to watch. Creighton's ceiling as a team this year is higher because of Kalkbrenner and his rim protection. It is a it's one of the things that is just rising above everything else as I watch this team. Huge, huge presence inside, and it's pretty impressive to watch what Ryan Kalkbrenner is doing protecting the rip. All right, that'll do it for the podcast. Make sure you subscribe, click that subscribe button. Uh, it helps your boy out. Leave a five-star rating and a review, and we will catch you next time on the Nick Bob Podcast. A Huda Media Production.